Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today on Barca Talk, Messi's injury is proving to be the motivation the rest of the team needed to step up and get a decisive result in the Champions League. We spoke to journalist and author Jonathan Wilson about his new book, The Barcelona Inheritance, and Real Madrid proved to be only a minor threat in a 5-1 Clasico that saw Suarez score a hat trick. Hey everybody, welcome to Barca Talk. This is Brian Henderson coming to you from Buffalo, New York, and joining me from Madrid, Spain, is Gabriel Quiroga. Brian, Brian, my birthday brother from another mother. Yeah, How's it going? I'm a 41-year-old man, <laughs> and yesterday was my special day. <laughs> yeah, happy, happy belated birthday. I mean, we talked yesterday, but now that we're seeing each other and face-to-face on on Zoom here. Happy happy birthday. In person. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. It was a lovely, lovely birthday. Uh, Megan and I went out for a great dinner. I had a really nice steak, and I haven't had steak in a while. It was really nice. We went to a, a place we'd never been to before in Buffalo, so that was cool. Had a really good steak, and like everything on the plate was good. The steak, the potatoes, the onions, the like fried onions, mm-hmm. some vegetable, which I'm not sure what it was. Had a delicious cocktail, then finished it off with a nice Macallan neat. It was just a, and I didn't get stuffed. Nice, nice. I remember one year for my birthday, we went to a Brazilian all-you-can-eat steakhouse, and I, I think I might have torn my stomach open that night. (laughs) This was much more normal. Like I felt fine after dinner. Yeah, I mean, those Brazilian steakhouses, man, you feel like you have to eat everything, you know? I paid for it. You're giving it to me. Got to eat it. Exactly. Know? Give me that chicken heart. I want to eat that chicken heart. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. We're having a little bit of a rain this weekend. It's going. To, I think it's going to rain for the Classico on on Sunday. So, Ooh, it'll be a wet uh, one. When I was, I'm a, wet, a wet, slick one, you know? Um, also, it's, you know, uh, end of the month. So excited for that. Thanksgiving's coming up. So, yeah, I yeah. can't believe it's early November. You know, it's crazy. Well, we got a, a pack, a, an action-packed episode today. We we have an, a match review with Inter, and then we have an interview with Jonathan Wilson, author of a new book about Barcelona, about Cruyff and his legacy at Barcelona and elsewhere. And then, of course, we have the El Clasico match review. And so behind-the-scenes action here, we're recording this portion of the episode on Friday morning prior to the Classico, prior to me going to Chicago and all of that. So uh, we'll have a lot more action and audio for you later on from that. But right now, let's get into the Champions League Inter match. This was on Wednesday at the Camp Nou, Champions League group stage, uh, 
third game, so now we've played everybody once, and it was a win. I think it was an excellent win, uh, two nothing. Um, now, to just to talk about Inter for a second, they're actually doing pretty well in Serie A right now. They have a good record of six wins, two losses, and one draw. They're running in third place, and in the Champions League, just like Barcelona, they also won their first two games, beating both Spurs and Eindhoven two to one. So this was their first loss. Now we're the only unbeaten team in that group. Yeah, and you know, we'll, let's talk about the lineups first. So the lineup we had going into to the, uh, that match was Ter Stegen goal, Sergio Roberto, Pique, Langley, and Alba. Standard operating procedure. Right. Uh, in the midfield, we had Busquets, Rakitic, and of course Artur getting another start. And Coutinho, Suarez, and Rafinha. Rafinha. So, yeah, so Rafinha getting – that was definitely the surprise of the lineup. When I saw that coming out, I did not expect that at all. So, again, um, you know, I, we think Valverde is going to go right. He zags left, you know, <laughs> you know, with the Rafinha move. Because, you know, obviously we kind of penciled in everyone for this starting lineup except for that last spot up top. I thought it definitely was going to be Dembele, but he chose uh, Rafinha. I think – based on a couple of things, you know, first of all, Rafinha's ability to possess, know how to hold the ball and to kind of have that chemistry with um, Sergio Roberto and Rakitic with the passing and going on that right side. But again, you know, this week there's been a lot of reports about Dembele being very tardy to a bunch of uh, training sessions. And obviously for this match, he showed up basically Brian 45 minutes right before the match. Yeah, that's not a good sign with Dembele. And I have to say, I was also surprised at Rafinha getting into the lineup. But that was mainly because it has looked in recent weeks like Valverde more or less has written him off. But now knowing this about Dembele, I honestly didn't know about that until you told me just now. Um, Now understanding that, it makes more sense as to why he would have made that choice. And it looks like overall it was a really good choice. And I think he made a strong case for himself, uh, Rafinha that is. Because on the goal he scored in the 32nd minute, Rafinha's coming down, he's coming downfield with the ball in the buildup, and as I was watching, I saw Suarez out to Rafinha's right, but I wasn't sure if he would make the pass, and if he did, I wasn't sure it would actually make it through all of the inter-defenders that were surrounding him, but he did make the pass, the pass did make it to Suarez, then Suarez's return ball dropped right to Rafinha's feet, as he had, you know, continued his charge into the box. And it was one of the best plays of the game for me. Prior to scoring, he had two chances in the 21st and 27th minutes that were both solid. Yeah, I mean, that play was brilliant, right? Suarez's pass was amazing. When I when I was watching it live, I thought for sure it was going to get headed out because it kind of looked as he didn't have enough height on the pass, but the way it kind of flared out and hit uh, Rafinha's feet perfectly. It was just a really great build-up of play. But you know, as we talked about, we were both surprised, you know, to see Rafinha in the starting lineup. But I think he really took the opportunity last night to really um, show Valverde that he can uh, perform in these big matches. And I, Brian, I think it was one of his best performances for the club in his career. You know, he was all over the place. I don't know if it maybe he had an awakening of if they give me another opportunity, I'm just going to go balls out. You yeah, know, and that's what that's what that's what it looked like because not only was he smart with the ball, right? He was possessing properly, giving the right passes. He was not giving up possession, but he was on the left side, the middle, the right. And then on top of that, he was pressing all over the place. I mean, he was running. I mean, he was completely gassed by the 75th minute because obviously he's not in shape to end game time. But if he plays like that, that's the Rafinha I want, you know, because sometimes when opportunity is taken away from you, kind of, you know kicks you in the balls a little bit, right? Sure. And 
you know, maybe he had that kind of a lightning where he said, okay, I want to take my opportunity next time I get it and I'm going to go all out. And you can tell not only did he go all out, but it kind of infused the whole team. And, you know, this is what we've been talking about with Valverde's kind of substitutions throughout the year. If he just puts a player here and there, they will infuse the team with energy, especially on the pressing side. And I have to say, you know, obviously Rafinha's performance was outstanding. But again, the theme of this kind of match too as well is everyone stepped up, you know. And so I was very impressed with Rafinha's performance. Yeah, no, me too. And, uh, you know, in both of those early chances that Rafinha had, 21st, 27th minutes, the buildup was impressive. And Suarez finally got his touch on in this game. There was no ham foot from Suarez in this match. In 21st minute, Jordi plays into Coutinho. Coutinho turns and plays to Suarez. And then Suarez, you know, he's got his back to goal and he just touches it back out for Rafinha. Rafinha gets a shot off. It was He shanked it, didn't have too much on it, so it was like easily saved. But the buildup was really nice and I liked how their movement and Suarez's touch was good. And then in the 27th minute, Rafinha gets a chance off of Suarez's back heel pass, which, you know, often he tries things like that. He tries these dummies. He tries these back heels. And it seems like it seems almost like he just has a game running in his head rather than paying attention to what's going on on the field. But in this case, Rafinha was right behind to receive it. And so I really want to highlight that Suarez was also playing well in this match and to bring it back to our theme. You know, how are we going to respond with Messi being injured and Messi being out? Everyone has to step up. And in this match, they showed that they were willing to do that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Suarez was definitely playing really well that night, too, as well. I think also, you know, just with the interchangeable parts that we had going on with Coutinho, Rafinha, and Suarez, Suarez was definitely more the point man up top. And we had better balance. You know, obviously, we talked how Messi is always coming in left in the middle and so forth and voiding that right space. But since Rafinha was there, we had that discipline on the right corner, the left back had to occupy that. And so Suarez had a little bit more space to work on. And of course, like you said, Suarez's passing was more accurate in this game. So it seemed to me that in this match that everyone just played a 10% better, you know, PK was more focused. Longley was more focused. Alba, everyone. Yeah. And so when that happens, we're unstoppable. Yeah. So it takes 11 guys to give 10% more to equal one Messi. <laughs> <laughs> it's just science. It's science. It's yeah. science. The Pythagorean theorem, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the other revelation as we talked about a couple of games ago was Artur. And, you know, in the Tottenham Tottenham game, he had an outstanding performance. But, you know, again, Brian, I can't tell you how, you know, in football, it's so difficult for what Arthur does, the movement, the activity that he does. It's one of those skills that you cannot really equate in statistics as much. It's just being available for the ball, you know. Uh, you, you know, we measure distance and passing accuracy and stuff, but there's really no stat really that shows the availability that our tour gives our team. And it's, it's night and day. I mean, how many times did we have the ball in the back line and we had three passing options because our tour came up, then all of a sudden we, we break on a counter. We, we, we have a good attacking um, going forward. And so again, I just love what I'm seeing from him. And again, I can't believe he's only 22 years old. That to me is insane right now, because if he's getting this experience, he's getting plugged in right now, the play, as he's doing, you know, as we talked about, he has a little bit of Javi in him. So again, for me, Arthur's ability to read the situations, pass efficiently, be available, gives the defense of the other team to work harder, you know, because that's, it's such a difficult thing because before they could really 
pressure us and we didn't have whoever was playing that left mid was not really coming up and being available like Xavi used to do. But again, man, it's man, when he's in there and playing really well, we're unstoppable. We are unstoppable because he just fills that void that we've been looking for since Xavi left. Yeah. And also he sort of just physically looks like Xavi. He has a similar kind of build and height and he, and he has those kind of bowed legs similar to Xavi's legs. So when he, you know, when you're watching it on TV and you got that distance, it all you know you can mistake him for Javi just because he has a similar way of running, like like his body moves in a similar way and he has a similar build and all this. And it's like, um, you know, it's like when you, it's like when you're at the mall and you you see some woman who reminds you of your ex girlfriend, and it turns out it's not her, but you know you get that flash of, of recognition. Yeah. But yeah, I I think that Arthur has really worked his way into the core. 11 the core starting 11 at this point and i've mentioned this before but it bears repeating the way the midfield can rotate with arthur on the pitch is something i've been missing in the last few years so it's this is i'm just piggybacking on what you're saying about how he's filling the gap that we've noticed since chavi left right it makes it hard for the other team to mark them when they're rotating in this way and um when Busquets isn't always in the center of the midfield and when Rakitic is on the right sometimes and sometimes on the left and Arthur is sometimes on the right or the left and sometimes they go from a a line of three into sort of a midfield triangle. The way they move and rotate just themselves as a midfield is inspiring for me. But there's one moment that I'd like to highlight from the 70th minute uh, concerning Arthur. So Inter had a corner. The ball comes into the box. PK heads it to Arthur just outside of the box. And Arthur's facing his own goal. He's facing our goal. And he just pops the ball up and behind him for Suarez, who's already running for the counter. Then Suarez puts a good pass back out to Coutinho. We wound up getting off three shots in that play, including a uh, shot from Coutinho that came off the woodwork. And just that one, I mean, of course, I know that Suarez had to be running. And other people had to be running for that play to happen. But Arthur's awareness and that little pass that he made started that whole thing. It, it sprung the trap. Brian, I used to hate playing against guys like this where the ball just, just seems always to find them, you know. And in this corner kick, that's exactly what happens, right? PK heads it. And he's just heading to an area, but it finds Artur perfectly in the chest, right? He flicks it over like a Brazilian playground play. And again, man, it just led to a great opportunity on the counter. And, you know, Artur just continues to make these correct plays. You know, his passing efficiency, his movement, it's just something that, you know, as we've been saying, we've been waiting for for so long. And when we have it, just like you said, with that combination of midfield rotating, the defense is, is cannot mark a single midfielder. They have to always have their head on a swivel. And that just gives us more holes behind them to attack. Yeah. Now, I want to also switch to Jordi because – the second goal came from Jordi Alba. He's a left back, of course, obviously one of the best. And so we don't expect him to score goals, right? He's in his seventh year at Barcelona. He's now scored a total of 14 goals in over 21,000 minutes played. I think the only other player with a worse scoring record would have been Mascherano, right? He was at Barcelona for many, many years, and he scored one goal on a penalty. But this just goes to show how... Everyone, again, everyone stepped up and made a contribution in Messi's absence. On this goal, he didn't just finish it. He started it, too, with this perfect pass to Vidal between the legs of two defenders. Starts to run. I mean, not he didn't nutmeg them, but they were closing in, and he gets it right. He threaded the needle right in between these two defenders, 
and he starts to run into the space they'd left behind. Vidal plays it back to him, but he's not done. He touches it back to Vidal immediately. Then Vidal out to Rakitic. Jordy's still running into the box. Then Rakitic finally plays it in. Jordy controls it, puts it in into the goal so sweetly, just caresses it over Andanovic, who was going to ground. You know, since coming to Barcelona, man, Alba's been one of the best left backs in the world, you know. Um, when I think of Jordi Alba, the first thing that comes to my mind is the, his activity on the pitch, right? He's the squirrel, right? Yeah. He's all over the goddamn field, you know? His action heat um, maps are, are red hot. I know. Red hot. On <laughs> fire, hot. you know? <laughs> yeah, there you go. White hot. I mean, his motor just doesn't quit, and he's been able to bomb down that left side. Man, it's it's so difficult to to match up with that because a player that has a motor of Jordi Alba's ability, his speed, his uh, talent, and it's just really hard to defend that. And again, you know, when I also another things that come to mind are just his goals, his timing for goals when he scored from the Euro final against AC Milan in 2013 when we came back. And this this goal was very similar to the the Euro goal for me where he just was calm collected and just put it through and you know when that happened it was game set Guillermo for sure and again just his ability and we've been able to pencil him in Brian for eight years I mean can you ever think of a time when he wasn't there I mean it's it's a couple times left and right when he had a red card maybe but other than that he's been super solid one of the best left backs and again last that night he had a great performance and finished it off with a great goal you know as we're talking about this I'm reminded of that Euro 2012 Particularly because, you know, I first really started paying attention to this and this stuff in 2010 because of how great Spain did in the 2010 World Cup. Jordi Alba, not on that squad at all. Over the next couple of years, yeah, he was playing at Valencia. I didn't really take any particular notice of him. And I was watching a lot of soccer in those years. Uh, Not just Barcelona. I was watching all kinds of stuff. And I never took any particular notice of Jordi Alba. Then Euro 2012 rolls around. And suddenly I'm like, who is this guy bombing down the left side? Like, (laughs) this is insane. And that was when I first really started taking notice of Jordi Alba. And as it turns out, Barcelona signed him that summer. And I thought, well, that's a good call. I do wish right now that they would have someone to give him a break. (laughs) But but he does have a a gas tank on him. (laughs) I mean, that's a good point. I mean, you know, a lot of times we've run him into the ground, and so we do need a substitute to spell him. I mean, we have it on the right, right, with Sergio Roberto and Semedo. Again, he's just been such a great player for us. Uh, he's going to be one of those Hall of Fame players at the end of his career just because of what he's done and what he's won, but also just the consistency of what, at the level he's done it. Again, like you said, on the heat map, it's just so impressive. If you just, like, watched him, just what he does, he's going up, down, left, right. I mean, he's like a midfielder when he's on attacking, right? He gives us a kind of outside presence. How many assists has he given to Messi? You know, just think of the Classico last year or two years ago in the last minute, right, in the Bernabeu. So for me, Alba is one of my favorite players to watch. And I'm just so impressed with his motor because as a as a football, ex-football player, like I could never have that type of motor. I wish I did. I wish I did. And, you know, it's, it's super impressive because it's so difficult to defend. And you can see with Arthur's performance, Rafinha, Alba and everyone else stepping up, 
you know, we're at top of the table and it looks like Inter is going to be the second team here in the Champions League as well. Yeah. And, you know, maybe the, your lack of motor, maybe that's why you were a forward rather than a wing back. But uh, correct. Yeah. Uh, among, among other things. Yeah. Other things. <laughs> so in the Champions League, we're unbeaten. Uh, the uh, As I said, the only unbeaten team in Group B at this point, nine for nine points, topping the group. Next up in the group stage, they're actually, it's kind of going in a palindromic schedule because we're going to play Inter again in Milan. That's our next match on November 6th. Rather than just going Spurs, Eindhoven, Inter again, we're going backwards so it's uh it's a little disorienting to me actually i mean i think we should be able to, to salvage some points there um if not use the opportunity to use the beat the bench you know for that away game because we're we're in the driver's seat and especially with tottenham struggling i mean struggling right now they tied against ajax and you know it's going to be between them and inter fighting for that last spot if we continue to perform as we're doing take a short break and when we come back we have an update on barca women and an interview with jonathan wilson we asked one of our listeners zach in cincinnati what he likes about barca talk the fact that you guys tie in a lot of the peñas in the U.S. and it almost feels like my own little Kenya that I'm a part of because there isn't a lot of that culture in Cincinnati. You don't really hear about the U.S. side of it a lot. And he's not just a listener, but he is a monthly supporter through Patreon. The reason that I started to do the Patreon was when you guys wanted to send the kids to the Barcelona camp. That was something that I thought was really cool, something that I can get behind. Patreon supporters are the primary source of support for this free podcast. But as a supporter, you get more than just the podcast. I do like having the little sneak preview podcast early in the week. Really, it's just kind of feeling that collective membership of being part of this own little pena. Bonus episodes, commercial-free episodes of the regular podcast, and Barca Talk merchandise. These are the benefits of supporting Barca Talk. Check out the premiums you get with a monthly contribution at Patreon. Just follow the link in the notes for this episode. All right, we're back. It appears that the relationship between women footballers and their club football schedules is best described as on again, off again. Here now with an update on the Barca women is Michelle Taylor. Book ended by two international breaks. Barca Femini is halfway through a three-week period in which they'll play seven games, five Liga and two Champions League matches. The game versus Rio Vallecano was played in the Minia study and Barca made the breakthrough in the 17th minute when Alexia Proteas scored the first of her four goals in a match that we won comfortably, scoring nine goals to Rio's one. Andresa, Mariona, Aitana and that old stalwart own goal added to Alexia's four. This is the third own goal for Barca this season and at one stage own goal led the scoring stats for the team. In an interview after the game, Alexia said that she's not used to scoring goals that her preferred position is to be behind the front line, feeding passes for others to score from. In this game, however, we saw Alexia move forward, with Bon Marti taking the number 10 role, and this proved to be an effective tactic for this match. Next up was the first game in our Champions League round of 16 tie with Scotland's Glasgow City. A game played at the mini, Haida Hamraoui scored in the 12th minute, and from there the game was Barca's. Up 3-0 at half-time, the Blagana added two more to take a healthy five-goal advantage into the second game to be played in Scotland on November the 1st. Barca's performance was one of the better ones that we've seen so far in this season, which is encouraging for the team and for the fans. 
Four days later, Barca Femini was in Uelva. It was here that we lost the Liga last season, playing a one-all draw. That loss of two points hurt us badly, especially as we'd only lost the Liga by one point to Atleti. Picture, if you will, a patch of concrete, painted green to resemble a football field. That's exactly how this pitch plays. Hard, fast and pretty impossible to control a ball when dribbling. So it was with trepidation that we went into this match. Welva's goalkeeper, Sara Srat, is one of the best in the business, and it certainly didn't help that Barca kept shooting directly at her. Welva was happy to sit back and defend, looking for any fast counter, and they flooded the midfield with players, which meant that our midfield was finding it impossible to control the game. Clever tactics. Finally, in the 39th minute, Amraoui had the ball in the net, as her low shot skipped under a diving Srat into the goal. But the goal had started down the other end of the pitch. Centre-back Mappy Leon had sent a long vertical pass into Alexia, who was on the outside left of the pitch. This pass took out the entire Uelva midfield that was doing most of the defensive work. Alexia sent the ball to Mariona, who passed to Amaroi, and the breakthrough was made, a 1-0 advantage going into half-time. Alexia scored a header in the 56th minute to give us a two-goal cushion, but that only lasted for six minutes before Uelva scored on a break, a lofted ball over an advancing Sandra Panos. Not much could be done to stop that one. Back to the nail-biting. Thirteen minutes later and we were awarded a free kick on the left side of the pitch, about three metres outside the penalty box. What happened next was nothing short of brilliance and a little luck. Vicky Lasada kicked the ball low and hard and it scudded across the pitch surface, taking a couple of wonky bounces before ending up in the back of the net. It was an amazing goal and very clever of Vicky to use the pitch to her advantage. A good 3-1 win and we can kiss this pitch goodbye for this league season. Hopefully we don't draw Welva in the Copa de la Reina. In September, Barca had returned from Kazakhstan with a lot of sick players and staff who had caught gastroenteritis. This forced the postponement of the Liga game versus Levante, as Barca was unable to form a team of healthy players, so a midweek game was up next to play that postponed match. The powers that be scheduled the game to be played on the same day as the Men's Champions League game versus Inter Milan, and this would have been ideal for the women to play Levante in the mini-study just before the men's game at Comp Nou. But that couldn't happen as the UEFA Youth League Juvenile A versus Inter Milan match was played in the mini at 4pm and the women's 6pm kickoff made it impossible for them to play there. The timing was too tight and I'm still not sure why the Youth League game was scheduled for 4pm when they've usually started much earlier than this. However, a good crowd of 700 still made their way out to the training grounds to watch the women play. Levante has reinforced well and it was expected that this matchup would be one of the most difficult that Barca would play this season. And so it was. We played with heart, but not our heads, and neither team gained control of the match. It was an interesting game for neutrals to watch, but for fans of both teams it was frustrating to watch chance after chance either miss the goal or be saved. The goal was marred by a bad head injury to Levante's Claudia Zornoza, which saw her stretched from the pitch and taken to hospital by ambulance. Thankfully she's okay. Her injury added 12 minutes of overtime to the game. Now, for some unknown reason, women's matches in Spain are allowed four substitutions rather than the typical three that the rest of the world observes. Claudia was injured in the 70th minute, and Barca had made one sub with Tony Dugan replacing Patry as the second half started. Alexia came on for Amaraui in the 72nd minute, so we had two more subs that could be made. This game was crying out for Natasha Andonova. But instead of putting her on so that she could have time to be effective, Fran Sanchez waited until the 92nd minute to sub her on for Mariona. 
This gave her 10 minutes to do something, and she tried, creating about three good chances in her short time on the pitch. The game ended in a nil-all draw, but again there are questions around Fran Sanchez and his decisions, especially as there was still one sub that he could have made to try for the win. He certainly didn't get the timing of his Andanova substitution anywhere near where it should have been. 10 to 15 minutes earlier, and it would have given her more time to get into the game. And he subbed off Mariona, a player who links very well with Natasha. It certainly appeared as if Sanchez was going for the draw rather than a win. Sometimes a bit more bravery would be good to see in the decisions that he makes. But there are still 24 games left in the season, so I guess that it's a bit too early for me to be conceding the league just yet. In the six games played so far, Barca has five wins and one draw, and sits second on the Liga table behind Atleti, who have won all six of their games. In my last podcast segment, I lamented the club's lack of recognition for our under-20 Women's World Cup silver medalists and our under-19 Euro winners. Well, maybe someone listened to the podcast, because Aitana, Claudia, Patri, Candela, and Barca B's Laia Cordina were seated in the President's Box for the Champions League match versus Inter Milan. Some long overdue recognition finally took place. I'm happy that it did, but, and there's always one of those, what about taking them to the centre of the pitch to celebrate their achievements with the fans in the stadium? I've said this before, you can't buy that publicity. Another brilliant marketing opportunity for the Barca women was missed yet again. And before I wrap up, images of USA's Carly Lloyd were seen on Barca players' Instagram accounts during the week as she attended the Inter Milan game and went out to the training grounds to see the women train. I held off tweeting anything about it until the club officially acknowledged her presence, but the sound of crickets has been a deafening accompaniment to the tumbleweed blowing through Barca's social media accounts. Nothing. Nada. Res. Instead, the story was picked up by the amazing Women's Soccer United website, who ran an interview with Carly and photos of her at Camp Nou, posing with President Bartomeu and the Women's Section board member Maria Teixador. I would think that making a big deal out of Carly's attendance would be a good move, or was there some reason that the club wanted her presence to be kept on the lowdown? I guess that we may find out soon. Or maybe not. Or was this just another lost publicity op by the club when it comes to its women's football section? Visca Barca y Forza Barca Femini. That was Michelle Taylor. Follow her Twitter account at Barca Women for continuous news and updates on the Barca Femini. I had the chance to talk to a journalist and author, Jonathan Wilson. He is a regular contributor to The Guardian, Sports Illustrated, and the author of 10 books on football, including The History of Football Tactics, Inverting the Pyramid. His newest book is called The Barcelona Inheritance in the U.S., The Barcelona Legacy Elsewhere, and it's hitting the shelves in the U.S. on November 6th. The book traces the roots and the enduring influence of the passing game and how Johan Cruyff created a revolution in tactics at Barcelona that has spread throughout the footballing world and remains an integral part of the Barcelona identity to this day. Here's my conversation with Jonathan Wilson. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Well, thank you for uh, publicizing the book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, are you comfortable? Can I get you anything? We're absolutely fine. Thank you. <laughs> so you're in the UK. Uh, of course, I'm in my studio here in my home in Buffalo, New York. You know, I'd like to say that uh, we make this podcast from the fan perspective, and mm-hmm. that's mostly because I don't know enough about football and its tactics to be an expert but you've helped me a lot with that. Inverting the Pyramid is, I believe, a completely essential book for anyone who wants to appreciate the tactics of football. And uh, I've gotten better at analyzing tactics for this show because I've been reading that book. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's good to hear. 
Yeah, so as as far as the, the new book goes, um, I actually want to start by talking about Johan Cruyff because today we recognize a clear Barcelona identity, philosophy, or as, uh, as you've called it, a legacy slash inheritance, depending on where you buy the book. <laughs> but uh, what some newer fans might not know, and what I had to learn when I first became a fan, was that Cruyff started that at Barcelona. It wasn't there prior to him. So uh, I would actually like to read a quick ep- excerpt from the book. You say, he added two tactics, a spiritual dimension that went far beyond the old platitudes of trying to entertain. It wasn't a template he created so much as an aspiration a way of thinking about the game that would shape football for two decades and probably more. So could you talk about that spiritual dimension? Yeah, I mean, um, Cruyff, I think, was very fortunate where he where he came from, where he grew up, that he was a kid growing up in Amsterdam at a time when Amsterdam was, I mean, I guess politically it was the centre of sort of the European youth movement. Um, it had been a very dull, conservative city, really right through until the 60s. And then the 60s, this great explosion of hippie culture. And um, it, you know, it, it becomes a centre of, of, of the left and and, and, and youth. And, and that clearly has a huge impact on him. But he you know, he grows up very near Ajax's ground in Amsterdam. Uh, his mother is a cleaner for Vic Buckingham, who was, a, a, I think, a, a great visionary coach at Ajax. And he would hang around Buckingham's house. That's where he learned English, was talking to Buckingham's kids. So Buckingham, I mean, Cruyff's father died when I think he was 12, but anyway, very young, whatever age it was. Buckingham becomes uh, a sort of secondary father. So that relationship was very close. And Buckingham, from a a tactical point of view, uh, he fits in this this tradition, which I think is really fascinating, that you can can trace back the ideas that we're now seeing, Pep Guardiola using at Manchester City, that he used at Bayern, that he used at Barcelona, in, in seven steps, you can go right back to the very first international in 1872 when England went to Scotland. And England were a much more developed football culture in 1872. Um, the Scots were very concerned because the English players were physically bigger. They were more than a stone and man heavier. And the game in those days was very much it was a, it was a dribbling game. It was about charging into each other. Right. So a bit like modern like, like modern rugby without the without handling the ball. Um and obviously, in, in those conditions, a weight advantage is, is an enormous advantage. And so the Scots thought, well, you know, what can we do about this? And they thought, well, we, we could pass the ball, keep the ball away from the English, and then their, their, their weight advantage won't be uh, won't be won't make, won't, won't make such a difference. And this works; it works so effectively that they draw nil nil. This is seen as being a huge success for the Scots. And in the 10, 20 years that follow. Um, Scotland, despite having a population roughly a tenth of that of England, is, is the better side over that first 10, 20 years of football's international history because they practice this passing game. The centre of that is Queen's Park. Uh, Queen's Park provide all 11 players for Scotland in that first international. And so Queen's Park is the centre of the passing game. Um, there's a player called Bob McCall, and people who've been to Britain, particularly the north of, of north of England and Scotland, might have seen news agents R.S. McCall. That's him. It's the same guy. Oh, wow. But when, when he moved from from Queens Park to Newcastle in I think 1901, but around about then, he got a signing on fee and he used that to invest with his brother in a chain of news agents, which still exist. Um, so he takes the the idea of the passing game to Newcastle. Uh, there's a, another midfielder there, a player called Peter McWilliam, who is is fascinated by this. And he takes those ideas to to Tottenham. He's a 
becomes coach of Tottenham, uh, he's way ahead of the game in terms of things like youth development, in terms of saying feeder clubs, in terms of having a concept of a club as something, um, you know, a, a sort of coherent or organic whole. Um, and one of the players who comes through his youth system is Vic Buckingham. Uh, so Buckingham is is you know, really at the heart of that tradition. He passes those ideas on to Cruyff and also to Enos Michels, who becomes coach of, of Ajax immediately after Buckingham. Buckingham had lots of problems with his back, so he went back to Britain to get his back sorted out. Michels replaces him. So it's, it's Buckingham who's given Cruyff his debut, but Michels very quickly takes over. Buckingham then himself becomes coach of Barcelona and is succeeded by Michels. Um, but where to, to, to finally get to your question about this third <laughs> dimension, Michels um, was was reasonably pragmatic, and you know, he was he was known for his toughness. He's this hard man, he's, you know, almost militaristic in his approach. He's he's relatively pragmatic, um, so he has these ideas about pass and move, about pressing, but you know, he recognizes um, that they need a, a tough defensive presence. So he goes to Partizan Belgrade, he signs this Yugoslav Serbian sweeper, Velibor Vazovic, who's, who's famous as a, as a hard man. And that's the basis on which he builds his team that, that Cruyff is part of and that wins the European Cup in 71. Vazovic retires after that and, and the uh, Michels moves on. But, and and the, the, the style becomes, I guess, more artistic. Uh, and that, that, I guess, is where Cruyff begins to change. So Cruyff then goes to Barcelona um, wins the league in his first season there, but he he sort of recognised that the way they're playing is is itself an, um, an expression of this these youth ideals of, of Netherlands. It's about freedom. It's about it's almost um, uh, it's about players having autonomy within a system. So this this is something that's very alive in the Netherlands of the time. It's this idea of you know, what we think of as total football. The, ter- the prefix total was originally used in, in the Netherlands of architecture, uh, ideas of city planning, of how you could create a, a city that functions so that each part is, is autonomous and yet it all works as a, as a greater whole. So this, this total idea, is it's very egalitarian, it's very Dutch, and that is the, you know, the, 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 the core, that's the bedrock of total football, of Christ football. And he's not a pragmatist in the way that the Michels was. Um, and so uh, even as a player at, at Barcelona in the 70s, he encourages Jusp Luis Nunez, the, the, the president of Barcelona, to set up um, an academy on his line, so to develop La Masia um, as, as an academy which will produce players to play this, this form of football. And he reaps the benefit of that when he goes back as coach in, in the late 80s. Uh, it's not easy for him at first. You know, his, his, the first two or three seasons don't go particularly well, but then he wins four league titles in a row. And I think it's important to remember the context of Barcelona. It's, I think it's quite hard for us now to, to get our heads around that Barcelona has always been a big club, but for a long, long time it was not a successful club. So when when Cruyff goes back in in '88, um, they've only won the league once since he left as a player which is under Terry Venables in, in 85. Mm. So they're not a team that's, that's reeling off league titles as they do now. They didn't win the European Cup until 1992. And you know, Cruyff winning that is, is probably the greatest thing he did for them, to give them that, that status as part of the European elite. So it was, 
it was um, it was a club with a huge amount of potential when when Cruyff took over, but one that hadn't delivered on that potential. Well, I guess really since the 1920s, if you've been very generous, but arguably never. Uh, but, but yeah, he has this idea, not just that he has to win, but he has to win in a certain way. And so that's the sort of, this, the spiritual aspect is, this is the right way to play, and it is a good way to play, not just because it brings results, but because it's somehow spiritually pure, it's good for the players. Right, yeah, it, it seems that Barcelona fans are peculiar, and I'm certainly one of these kinds of fans, in uh, their their fervor, for this philosophy that there is a, a right way to play the game uh, and, you know, sometimes to this religious level. And now that we've enjoyed so many years of success, again, rem- remembering that prior to Cruyff, we hadn't had all that success. The fans also now demand that the team win. So there's this fundamental contradiction, right? Beauty and this right way of playing and art versus winning the hard truth you know the hard facts of having to win and now that conflict is present at and around barcelona in a way that i don't think it is around other clubs that contradiction is probably more pronounced at barcelona than anywhere else i think pretty much all top clubs now have some elements of that um i think the the sort of the the evolution of a super club which you can see over the last uh, 10, 15 years, where really the Champions League begins each season and you kind of know there's six to eight teams have got a, got a good chance of winning it. And if any team from outside that wins it, it's a massive shock. So when Porto won it in 2004, it was a small shock, but not a massive shock. If Porto were to win it this season, it would be the most incredible thing we'd ever seen. So I think because there's a you know, failure for the, for the league clubs is going out in the quarterfinal or going out in the semifinal, and which is crazy, really. I mean, only one team can win each year. So, but I guess that what I'm, what I'm saying is the negative downside has been reduced. So, a bad season for Bayern Munich or Barcelona or Real Madrid or um, England, slightly different, or you know, PSG. A bad season is finishing third or fourth in the league. Well, in the old days, they used to finish tenth, eleventh, twelfth. Not regularly, but it happened, and it wasn't that extraordinary. When that negative downside is is taken away, I think that that creates a sense of almost entitlement. But not merely do those teams expect to win, not merely are they hoping to bring silverware, but they sort of expect things to be done in a certain way. And it's almost as though, you know, if you, you know, 20, 30 years ago, if you were, say, a Manchester United fan and you'd lost in the semi final of the Champions League or the European Cup, you would probably think, yeah, that was a pretty good season, that was quite exciting. Now you wouldn't. Right. <laughs> And so, what that does is it, it, it means, okay, how how can you how can you generate a sense of fulfilment or a sense of satisfaction from a semi final defeat? Well, if you've played great football, if you've played football that you will remember with a sort of rosy glow for years to come. Oh, we might not have won the Champions League, but remember when we beat Napoli four one in the quarter final, or whatever it happens to be. So I, I think, and this is part of the, the dynamic that Mourinho's got at, at United at the moment, that all big clubs, there's a demand not merely to to win, but to play well. But you're right, that is more pronounced at Barcelona, and there's a sense that Barcelona have to do it in a particular way. And I, I guess the easiest way to see that is to look at the flip side, which is the people who Barcelona appoint as their managers. And you have to be part of that philosophy to be appointed Barcelona manager. So the most incredible, 
at the time, to me, appointment Barcelona ever made was appointing Frank Rijkaard as manager. Now, it worked. It worked brilliantly. They won the league. They, they won the Champions League for only the second time. But when, when Frank Rijkaard got that job, he had, a, at best, an average time as Netherlands national manager, reaching the semi-final of, of year 2000 when the Dutch were hosts. He'd then um, been relegated to Sparta Rotterdam, the first relegation in Sparta Rotterdam's history, so a catastrophic failure. And he'd just accepted a job to be manager of the Dutch Antilles when he, he gets the call from Barcelona and he decides, Dutch Antilles, Barcelona, yeah, OK, I'll go Barcelona. So it's an that easy was, choice, really. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the fact he has that choice to make is yeah. extraordinary. It's not that he had a, a whole history of, of success in his past. They were, they were selecting him because... He came precisely from a Cruyffian school, um, and so the, you know, he would play in the right way. And you know, even when Guardiola got the job, the, the choice came down to two managers, one of whom had won the Champions League twice, no, sorry, once at that point, but had won the league in in Portugal and in, in England. And the other one had had one season managing Barcelona's reserve side, but they went for the one who would play football the way they wanted to play, and of course, it was massively vindicated. But it, you know, there's a there's definitely a philosophical underpinning on that kind of decision, which I don't think you find anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I I also wonder if part of that choice had to do with uh, placate not placating, but uh, appealing to the fans, because not only did the people maybe in the boardroom, because that was Laporta, I think, who brought in Guardiola, right? He's he's on this this whole campaign to sort of revitalize Barcelona after they'd had a couple really bad years, particularly the year right before. And he's making a play to try and get the membership excited again about this, this Cruyffian style, this philosophical idea. So even though, and you're right, he was absolutely vindicated, uh, but if it hadn't worked out just you know, prior to it being vindicated, it on the surface to me also seems like it was one of those decisions that had something to do with appealing to the members and the fans as well. Yeah, and if, if you see a lot of managers do this and a lot, a lot of club directors do this, that um, it's, it's a nice excuse. Oh, we lost, but we, we lost in the right way. So you saw you know, Van Gaal after the 2010 Champions League final, for instance. Oh, yeah, my, my Bayern Munich side lost but we played the attacking football. And it's, a, it's an easy way of consoling yourself. And, you know, you see it, um, I think, quite cynically used. I mean, uh, it occurred to me during the, the latter years of, of Arsene Wenger at, at Arsenal, and there was a, this weird similarity to Brian Clough's final years in Nottingham Forest, this idea that actually pushing through and winning, like, like those two managers used to do, had become too difficult. For whether it was to do with, you know, for, for financial reasons or whether it was to do with the managers that somehow lost a, a little bit of edge. And so the excuse they kept coming out with was, yeah, but we do it the right way. And that's that's quite a consoling thing. And I think part of Barcelona's history, um, the fact that they were so unsuccessful for so long, the consolation was always, yeah, but we're, we're the good guys, really. And that's what the whole Mescuan club is, right? That's That's kind of part of that idea and that's one of the things I think that people who don't like Barcelona that's one of the things that annoys them is there's a, there can be and I say this as a total neutral there can be an element of sanctimony and there can be a, a sort of yeah okay you might have beaten us but look you, you're making all these tackles that's really not on <laughs> right <laughs> that's, so, yeah, I, that, that's the danger of that kind of self-image 
Yeah, and I think that sanctimony was at its height, actually, under Guardiola, who was, again, the manager who whose squad and whose, you know, the, his tactics and the way his team played, he was blessed with incredible players, but he also had, a, he's a tactical genius, obviously. You see what he's doing at Man City, and it's proof that no matter where he goes, he, he makes great things happen. But but particularly when he was at Barcelona, I think that was when the sanctimony was at its height. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that was one of Mourinho's great triumphs, was he sort of forced that on them. Um, and I think that was when Mourinho was, it was just at the turn for Mourinho. I and mean, I think he, the last sort of seven, eight years, he, you know, he's lost a bit of that edge. Um, but the season, uh, towards the end of, of 2010-11, so, okay, Guardiola, uh, Barcelona, they win the league, they win the Champions League. But I mean, Guardiola himself said, "Yeah, w- we won the battles, but but we lost the war." He was left exhausted by those four games in sixteen days, whatever it was, eighteen days. Uh, those you know, those four classicos, the the Copa del Rey final, the second league game of the season, the two Champions League semi-finals. You know, he, he okay, he lost one of them, but he won won the ones that mattered, uh, or that really mattered. But he was left exhausted by that. And I think part of the cleverness of what Mourinho did was to to take that tendency towards sanctimony in Barcelona anyway, and to magnify it by by Real Madrid being unpleasant and uh, exploiting gamesmanship and being very physical and being nasty. It sort of forced Barcelona to be oh, look, ref, he just kicked me all, and that of course is the thing that, that infuriated fans of other clubs, and so there became a bit of a anti-Barcelona backlash. Um, and that, that, you know, that that was, I think, clever of Mourinho to, I mean, horrible, but clever of Mourinho to exploit that. And he then, you know, reaps the benefit of that, of that the following season when when Real Madrid, Real Madrid win the league. But then it turned out, actually, that was also a case of winning the battle but losing the war because he was left without any, any allies in the Real Madrid boardroom and ends up leaving yeah although generally if there's one thing i could say positive about Mourinho, i i don't like Mourinho, of course but but if there's one thing that i could say in his favor is that he he does know how to win games both on and off the pitch right and i, I mean those four those four games in 18 days that exhausted me just as a fan watching them i can't even imagine what what sort of stress yeah. that put guardiola and the players under and of course i remember the 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 press room the press room battles that was the big one that that Mourinho definitely won no definitely won in the long term yeah but yeah, <laughs> yeah that the the backlash uh, you know, when Guardiola finally snapped um, so there'd been the the league game which was drawn which pretty much confirmed Barca's title so then the Copa del Rey game when uh, Ronaldo scores the winner but Pedro had a goal ruled out for. But, you know, uh, he was offside, but he was just offside. And Guardiola said that, that you know, a two or three inch decision um, went against him, but rightly went against him. And Mourinho then spins that against him, saying, oh, yeah, here's a manager complaining about referees when they get the decision right. Well, that, that wasn't what Guardiola had done at all. He'd said it was tight, which it was. And he'd accepted the decision was correct, which it was. Um, and that then is one prod too many, and Guardiola spills over. Um, which can go one of two ways. Um, you see managers erupt and it has a catastrophic effect on their team. Kevin Keegan with Newcastle in 1996, most famously, you know, certainly in England, most famously. Um, or it can be cathartic and, and, and can help. And in this instance, 
any bass player you talk to said they found it very cathartic and they were they sort of felt this great sense of relief this sort of boil had been lanced and the, the, the poison had begun to to, to uh, flow away so you you could argue that the, the Guardiola did win that battle in the end but it's definitely a battlefield on which Mourinho was was more comfortable yeah and also uh, I want to go back to what you were saying about losing but losing the right way versus uh losing the the wrong way because right within Barcelona we don't have to we don't have to go anywhere else <laughs> we can see in Barcelona how in 2017 we had this big comeback against PSG and that everyone was just beside themselves uh including myself but then of course in the next round we just we couldn't keep up that kind of excitement that we couldn't keep up that kind of performance and of course Juventus knocks us out in the very next round but none of us really minded because I think we all agreed that well we were still playing the right way versus this last year we get knocked out by Roma mainly the disappointment came because we gave up a very large lead but also we just we felt like we went about this project in the Champions League last year the wrong way Valverde made a drastic error and we I think we're still sad about that loss whereas the one the year before that not so much we don't worry about it too much okay cuz I'd say that the the problem was actually the same in both 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 years and I think it's an ongoing problem for Barcelona that the midfield has has lost it which is always going to be difficult once Xavi went once Iniesta slowed down and then went Busquets obviously is Never, he was never quick, but he's even slower now. And you know, even the Chelsea game last season, Chelsea again and again just romped through that midfield. So, I mean, my interpretation of, of the season before last was actually it was just PSG absolutely imploding. I mean, of course, Barcelona played well. Of course, they did. You don't don't score six in a game by not playing well. But it, it was a sign of PSG's ludicrous self-indulgence hysteria around them that Neymar seems to bring with him which we're kind of seeing again this season with PSG that it's a completely shambolic setup of PSG so yeah I I, I, I think Barca's midfield has been an issue for, for some time um, I think it was actually this what I've seen of them this season certainly in the Champions League has looked a lot lot more efficient I thought the game at Wembley against Tottenham they, they looked really really good and I thought it was a really high level game and then even even against Inter this week you know, Messi not there, but they cope very, very well. And any sense that Inter were actually on a level with with the elite, which maybe the Tottenham game had, had given that impression. Although that was a bit of a strange game. Yeah, it was clearly a, a big gulf between the sides. So yeah, I mean, fans interpret things in in their own way, and there's often very good reasons for those ways. But me as a as an outsider, I'd say you know both last season and the season before, was an issue of the midfield not used to being stretched, suddenly finding it didn't have a legs when it was stretched. Yeah, and I appreciate your your neutral's uh, viewpoint on it because, of course, I'm I'm a fan of Barcelona, so my my assessment of everything is biased. So I appreciate your <laughs> your your unbiased uh, take on it. And I, well, I think, I I think you're biased. Right. It's not the same bias as yours. That's... Right, right. So in the context of talking about Barcelona, you're not biased in the way that I am. So I appreciate that. Um, but I want to end actually by asking about our current manager, Ernesto Valverde. Uh, he played for a, a year, maybe two, I'm not sure. But he played under Cruyff at Barcelona, um, though he spent most of his playing and managerial career at Athletic Bilbao. 
another club with a philosophy, though perhaps it's more about Basque identity than football. But in terms of Barcelona philosophy and legacy slash inheritance, what do you make of Valverde's management at Barcelona? That is a really interesting point. That Athletics philosophy could hardly be more different to Barcelona's. And you see that um, in that you know, the really ugly rivalry that uh, Barcelona and, and Athletic had in, in the early to mid-80s. And yet, you look at the players that Cruyff signed when he first arrived, there's a lot of Basques that he signed. My suspicion is that Cruyff felt that he couldn't, he didn't want to sign, how can I put this, and I'm going to offend people by saying this, he didn't want to sign Castilian Spaniards, he didn't want to sign people from Madrid, but he's quite happy to sign other people who'd been obviously opposed to Franco. And so there's obviously some kind of Basque-Catalan brotherhood there, uh, but also the reputation of Basque as being tough, as being warriors. I think he wanted to add a bit of that to, to the side. I think he felt that Barcelona maybe could become a bit soft. So I, it, just because Cruyff is this sort of spiritual, or his football has a spiritual dimension, I don't think we should think that there's not a, a ruthlessness there. I think I think there absolutely can be. And you, you look at the Dutch side of the early 70s, look at Johan Neuschkens, a player who played for both Ajax and Barcelona as well. And you look at some of the things he did on the pitch, and you look at, I mean, particularly um, the game between the Dutch and Brazil in 1974 at the World Cup, when uh, he and Mourinho Perez just have a fist fight. And then they end up playing with Barcelona, I think it's the, is it the following season, maybe two seasons, I think it is the following season. They end up as teammates at Barcelona. Um, so there's a, yeah, Dutch football has a, a tough side to it. Um, I don't know. It's too easy to say that you bring in Basque to add toughness. But I, I think... Well, there's there def- that stereotype, at least, that Basque players are big and tough, barrel-chested. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm one-eighth Basque, by the way. So. Okay. <laughs> you look one-eighth barrel-chested. Right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so as, as to Valverde, I, I, I think there's always a danger, and this is true not just of Barcelona style, but any, any, any area which ha- or any club, any, any region which has a distinct style of play, if you follow that too purely, too precisely, you end up... Um, it's like in breeding with, with pedigree dogs or something, uh, that you, you start to develop all kinds of tics and mannerisms and, and vulnerabilities that you really shouldn't, just because you're, you're not aware of predators, you're not building up the antibodies against predators... So I think bringing in every now and again somebody with a, a bit of an outside view is not necessarily the worst thing. And I think Luis Enrique, who, of course, he had his very, very proud history playing for Barcelona, but did not grow up in La Masia, played for Real Madrid before he played for Barcelona. I think he did that very well. Our 2015 team, um, personally, I preferred the 2011 team, but I could see why some people preferred the 2015 team. It was, it was more varied. It had more different ways to win a game. Uh, the 2011 team, it was you know, the it was the beautiful summit of an ideal, um, but you knew exactly how they would win games, and it was a very very effective way of winning games. 2015 team, they had more dribblers, they had more individuality. So you know, I know, for instance, Gary Neville has always said he preferred the 2015 team because he felt they were harder to stop because they could beat you in more different ways. So I, I, I think bringing in a, a little bit of outside expertise is is very useful. But the problem Barcelona have. And it's a problem anybody, any club that um, likes to promote from within its own academy has, is you cannot rely on an academy. 
even the very, very best academies, they produce one great generation every 20, 30, 40 years. So, you know, Ajax had the great generation of late 60s, early 70s. They had another one in the early 90s. The one they've had in the last two or three years maybe will come to be seen as a great generation, but the economics of modern football mean it gets scattered to the winds before you have a chance to see that build together. Um, Manchester United had an academy which produced a great team in the 50s, which was destroyed at Munich, in the 60s and in the 90s. But they're nothing coming through now. Now, maybe that's because something's gone wrong in the leadership of the academy, or maybe it's just that something you know you just don't always get it's not it's not a it's not a tap you can turn on and off it's just sometimes you get your good generation sometimes you don't and Guardiola um I mean he was very fortunate for for the rest of the world that a manager who wanted to play in this very precise Cruyffian in Barcelona way got the best generation of Barcelona talent has probably ever been and you know, one of the great things about his side of 2009-2011 is it is based on Lanassia and you have Messi and Xavi and Iniesta and Piquet and Busquets and Valdez, and I'm sure I'm missing somebody, uh, Pedro. Um, but that's not going to happen all the time. And then when you bring in outsiders, of course the dynamic changes. And I think because Barcelona's way of playing, or certainly the way they played 2009-2011, is so unique, that can be quite quite difficult to, to incorporate outsiders into that ecosystem. Um, I, I, which you saw with, with Guardiola's signings. Very few of Guardiola's signings at Barca really worked. I mean, Ibrahimovic didn't work, Shigrinsky didn't work. Um, even people like Eto and Henri, they worked to an extent. Davi Villa probably is the best import um, of, of Guardiola's time, but even he, it, it, it took a while. And so when you don't have a great generation coming through, that that does make things difficult. And that's, that's the issue that Valverde's dealing with. Yeah, and we always hear complaints from fans and they vary in terms of their severity but uh, we always hear complaints from fans currently about how there aren't as many La Masia players on the first team and uh, something that we've brought up I and mean, I've expressed this frustration myself because again I'm I'm more of the idealist I'm more of the uh uh what would you call it the 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 religious uh <laughs> I'm I'm more of a, I'm more devout. I'm more pious than my partner Gabriel, right? He's much more pragmatic in his thinking. And he, but he's pointed out many times that you just can't get a generation like that. You can't get players like that out of your academy every year. It's just, that's just the natural cycle of things. You know, we had a great generation and now we're just, basically, we're just going to have to wait for another one. But the machinery is there to create it. And now it's just a question of, you know, scouting and, and waiting. Yeah, and you saw even to the end of, of Guardiola's time, he was trying to promote players from the academy, and they weren't quite good enough. Players like Teo and um, Cuella, uh, Bojan, um, you know, they, they had a lot of chances, and it's no great disgrace to them. You know, the standard was extraordinary, but they weren't quite at that level. So sometimes that happens, and not much you can do. Right. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for uh, talking to me. I really appreciate it. And, of course, uh, the book is coming out on November 6th in the U.S. under the title The Barcelona Inheritance. It's already been uh, released in other places, the U.K. specifically, as The Barcelona Legacy. But look for that soon here in the U.S. as The Barcelona Inheritance on November 6th. Uh, Jonathan, thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. Jonathan is probably the most knowledgeable person about football I have ever had the chance to talk to. I wish we could have talked all day. Fortunately, uh, mostly for him, 
I'll just read his book so that he doesn't have to talk to me for days on end. After the break, an excellent result in El Clasico. All right, we're back and we're here to close out the show in this final act, talking about the Clasico, which Real Madrid came to Barcelona to play in the Camp Nou for La Liga, and it was a really good result. We won 5-1, to one, so it was another little hand, another manita for Barcelona versus Real Madrid. A really good result. So uh, there, there you go. There's, that's the beginning. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. <laughs> we got another. We got hand part two, right? Part duh. Yeah, we got two hands now. Finally, <laughs> we got two hands. So, I mean, really exciting match. I mean, obviously there were some tense moments in there, but a really great result. I'm just, you know, you know, we haven't been playing the the best in the last month, but there's just nothing more satisfying than killing Real Madrid at home. I mean, it's just a really great result. So, it's the best. Uh, how was your, yeah? It is. How was your uh, viewing experience there in Chicago? It was it was not great, if I'm totally honest. I mean, in, in many ways, it should have been really good because uh, it was at this... So the Chicago Pena, they have their viewing, their watch parties at the clubhouse at a futsal facility. So, like, you, you walk into the futsal facility and there's nets up and there's all the turf fields and then you just go past those into the... The clubhouse, which is really just a bar, bar and grill kind of situation, and there's TVs everywhere. Like I don't like they measured it, I think, so that there can't be any more than two feet between TVs. There's just TVs everywhere. Uh, a lot of people were out. Of course, it was not terribly early in the morning for Chicago, but you know, still like on the breakfast side of things. So a lot of people, and I've never been to a watch party with so many people wearing jerseys. Like there were maybe only two people not wearing a Barca jersey, and like that's a lot. But uh, so it was a really good atmosphere as far as the fans coming out, the uh, the members of the Pena coming out and supporting. I didn't get exactly the treatment that I was expecting coming from Barca Talk. I mean, I got in touch with people from the Pena beforehand to let them know I'm going to be in Chicago and I asked for a table to set up at so that I could put up our Barca Talk banner and maybe some of our our merch we only have stickers and magnets around now but like put those out and sort of like have almost like a booth and uh, I showed up and we were on the list to get into the event but that was it that's all we had so we just sort of, i mean they were accommodating they were like yeah hang your banner wherever but it was it just seemed like no one greeted us uh megan and i no one like made it no one went out of their way to make us feel especially welcome but they were cool uh and then i this on coutinho's first goal I had my computer on a table and the guy, this other guy sitting down the table, he slammed on the table and he caused some water to spill on my computer, but my computer's fine. Uh, But that was, that set me off as well. So like, it wasn't great for me personally, but it was a good event overall, I think. Come here. Give me a hug. (laughs) Give me a hug, Brian. Give me a hug. I need a hug. (laughs) (laughs) It's just well, frustrating, you know, because it seems like every Classico I go somewhere and I and I always hope for more than than I get as far as promoting the show. It's always great to be around other fans, you know, but 
it's like it it never quite goes the way it's like i want to be special but i'm not the special thing the game is Mm. so i think i need to just sort of get over myself a little bit when i go to these things and i need to try to not work basically like if it's happening on a saturday i could just go and watch as a regular person but if it's on a sunday and we're going to record right afterwards i need to just stay home i can't go to these things on sundays yeah because I took well, no notes. I took. I just watched the game and I made some mental notes, but I didn't take the notes that I take. You know, when I when we normally do the show. Well, luckily, um, I took some mental notes, so you know, I you know, we'll go from there. But uh, you know, that's unfortunate. I'm sorry about to hear that about it with your computer and the and the viewing experience. But you know, I mean, overall, Brian, at least we got another manita. So I mean, yeah, I'm happy about that. But. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I was watching at a bar and it was funny because half the bar was Barcelona, half of it was uh, Madrid fans. And as soon as the first goal came in, it was very distinct on what side was which. And it just happened to be where I was sitting was the Barcelona side. There was like a bunch of kids and so forth. So we were really excited about the goals, the experience and everything. So we had a we had a good viewing experience. And of course, I just love seeing Madrid fans cry. So that's just another uh, <laughs> cherry on the, on the ice cream there for me. So Now, how many people at the bar that you were at were wearing jerseys of any sort uh one person it was my friend Luis. <laughs> yeah see i guess that's more of an american thing because like i said this chicago yeah. man like megan felt really out of place not wearing a jersey oh really oh yeah i mean there were there were some people there just mostly with scarves you know with a madrid scarf or barcelona scarf like there was a bunch of kids next to us that had uh barcelona gear but it wasn't jerseys yeah. So it was like good sweatshirts and, and hats and things like this. But uh, yeah, so we had a good viewing party there. And obviously just the result was was great. I mean, I mean, I just, man, I just love beating Madrid. It's the best. <laughs> it's, it's the fucking best. Yes. Man. It's the best feeling that there is aside from winning trophies. Just that. By, obviously. Just beating course. them by itself is like its own little trophy. Of course. So, and this one is shaped like a little hand. So that's a good one. Yeah, even better. But so, the lineup was uh, the lineup that we're coming to expect at this point, it was a solid lineup. I mean, especially after the performance from the intermatch over the week, you know, we definitely thought it was going to be the same. And sure enough, it was the same, especially with Rafinha starting up top. So we had Ter Stegen, Sergio Roberto, Piquet, Longley, Alba, Busquets, Rakitic, Artur in the midfield, and then Coutinho, Rafinha, and Suarez. And, you know, just like we said, because the performance was so strong against Inter, we knew that it was going to be equally the same lineup. And of course, you know, proved to be a good uh, gamble by Valverde because we scored early and we looked really, really uh, good, you know, really strong in the first half as well. Yeah. And that first goal. Well, what I want to talk about actually is how mostly throughout the entire first half, but certainly in the opening of the first half, uh, Real Madrid looked really weak on what was their right side as far as defending. So we were making all of these attacks down our left flank with Jordi Alba bombing down there and connecting really well with Suarez and Coutinho and Arthur, of course. And that was what led at least to the first goal, the Coutinho goal in the 11th minute. Yeah, I mean, Alba in the first 20 minutes was just bombing that left side, as we always talk about. And it was interesting because right before that first goal, when he had some time and some space, he made a really bad pass. And I, and I was, I was talking to my friend. I said, man, how does that even happen? You're professional. I love Alba, but that, that pass was so errant. And obviously he made up for on the next play when he made the right play to continue. But like you said, Brian, they were just continually attacking that left side. I think also the, you know, as we talked about in the, in the previous match, just the interconnection between Rakitic, Artur, Alba, just 
everyone just moving around. You know, the Madrid players didn't know who to mark or where to mark. And when they were trying to mark space, they should have marked man. When they should have marked man, they should have marked space. So they were always like in the correct, in the wrong in that. So obviously we took advantage in the first 20 minutes, especially to getting that first goal by Coutinho. Yeah. And it was a very similar play in the 30th minute or in, in the 30th minute was when Suarez actually scored the second goal on the penalty. But in the play that led up to the penalty, it was the same exact kind of thing where they're coming down the left, bombing down. Jordi Alba puts the cross in for Suarez this time. Um, not so much of a cutback. It was more square, but same basic idea of a play. And he gets fouled. Referee lets it go. And then VAR saved us. We got the video review. And they called it the penalty, and then Suarez put it away. Yeah, I mean, it was it was the correct call, too, because it was just, you know, it was a foul in the box. So it's a penalty. And it was funny when I was watching the match there in this bar, the kid immediately stood up next to us, and he just did the VAR signal. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I love this kid, you know, because, yeah. like, he knew. And, you know, for there was that, you know, that gray minute or so where it was still unsure whether or not it was going to be held by VAR. And then, sure enough, he went. And he said he, you know, he made the decision very quick. And my friend Luis was telling me, he's like, yeah, I don't think it's a penalty. And he just pointed to the spot. So, again, uh, VAR coming through with the, with the right call because it was it was a foul. You know, it doesn't it wasn't a red card foul, but it was just a foul in the box. Yeah. And again, just like you said, Alba, again, was just having the first half. He was just again, he's just like another midfielder for us when he's in the attacking third. He makes, you know, usually the right passes and he's just a menace on that right back, whoever that is. Yeah, and he later on he even had a shot like within the box that came off the post, I think, or it just missed. But he was in a position to be to be scoring almost, and I, he you know he scored in that last match, so maybe that's something we're going to start seeing more of. But uh, getting back to Suarez, right? So in the thirtieth minute, he takes the penalty to start what would become a hat trick. He scored the next two goals after that in the seventy fifth and eighty third minute, so we had a little bit of a drought there. But overall, he got a hat trick out of this, and I like to think of this uh, this whole scoreline as far as Barcelona is concerned as as a hat trick sandwich, with Coutinho and Vidal as the bread and Suarez as the meat. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's pretty good. That's pretty good. You know, I I texted you right. There was two huge opportunities where we were on the counterattack and Suarez just hammed it up. I mean, completely right. And you know, when Madrid scored that goal back. I just look back at those moments where if Suarez was just a little bit more composed and just made those proper passes, we could have, you know, been up 5-1 earlier. But again, Suarez had a great match. I can't complain too much, especially with the outcome of his hat trick. You know, he came to play and, you know, obviously I could nitpick about those two passes because I just, you know, in that moment, uh, you know, especially right before halftime, especially we could have been up 3-0 and that could have really demoralized Madrid right before halftime. But again, you know, as we talked about who was going to step up, it looks like it was Suarez. Yeah. Well, I mean, you sent me those messages prior to his second goal and after he had hammed, (laughs) after he had stuck his ham foot into those, uh, those couple chances. And it's true that in the last match against Inter midweek, his touch looked great. And in this match, his touch looked hammier as as per usual. So you sent me these messages before he had scored that second goal. And that, that was the goal that he scored with his head off of that kind of unexpectedly. It was, I think that the pass was intended to go past him, but he just put his head in the way and said, no, I got this. I'll, I'll deflect this into goal. And then I told you, well, 
his 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 touch might be off today and his feet might be bad, but his head is fine. Yeah, exactly. And he made that really nice early header, you know, because he could have chested it and put it down, but he just let it head. And I think that caught Courtois off guard. So as we talked about uh, through our text messages, there was that 10 minutes of tense period between, you know, when Madrid scored that goal back and it was kind of, we looked tired. We looked out of it a little bit. We just kind of, we're just trying to weather the storm. And it's interesting. I was talking with my friends that were there. And we're just like, if they can just weather this storm for 10 minutes without allowing another goal, they'll be okay. But again, I was just happy to see Suarez step up and he was looking to take that game and to be the man of the match for sure. Yeah. And also I want to mention how on Suarez's third goal, the assist came from, it came from Sergi Roberto, but it was one of those moments where uh, Sergi got the that final pass off because he could see Suarez, I don't know how exactly uh, the communication on the field went. Of course, I, I never do, and I wish I would. But you could see the Suarez was starting to run, and he was <laughs> one way or another. He was gonna run, right? So whether you get him the pass before he's offside or not, he's just gonna go. And there was something. It seemed like Sergi knew this, so he's so he he went to ground getting the pass off in time for Suarez to receive the ball without being offside and he was in tons of space and he was able to put that that third goal away for the hat trick and uh put the rest of our minds at ease i mean i don't know brian i love those cuchada those little flip goals i mean it was so brilliant the way he was able to finish oh yeah the finish was so yeah cheap. i know it was awesome and it wasn't like he didn't do it enough to clear him courtois enough it was just a very quick kind of cuchada type of goal and it was just a really brilliant finish. Like you said, he was able to find space, especially when Real Madrid was really pressing at that moment because they could sense the goal coming, especially with Modric just hitting the post, you know, just prior, essentially. So they were really pressing to try to get that goal back. Yeah, and before we started recording, you know, you were we were talking about, you know, when did the subs happen for us and was anyone subbed in in response to those 10 minutes or so? Uh, when Madrid looked to be, you know, stronger, of course. And Semedo was the first sub for us in the 68th minute. And I think at that point, we had pretty much already settled things. We'd already weathered that storm. Like you said, Semedo came in, and then Dembele came in, and then we scored the third goal. So I think, yeah, right, so okay. uh, Suarez scored in the 75th minute. And again, you know, Dembele's speed is something that Nacho had to be really cognizant of especially coming in for Coutinho on that left side of the 4-3-3 you know that gave some more space in the midfield for Barca to get gain back that advantage and sure enough that's what happened and that's when Suarez broke off with the Cuchara goal for the 3-1 so um actually sorry for the for the heading goal so again it was just, it was just yeah. it was smart substitution finally by by Valverde coming in early recognizing that Rafinha was running out of gas because in that in those moments when Madrid was coming hard on us Rafinha couldn't be found right he couldn't be found and I don't know if he was just out of gas I mean I, I assume he was because again this is just his second game in as many as a month you know and he's just coming back into the fold. So, again, he had a good performance, not not as good as he did against Inter, but at least Valverde was able to recognize and make those substitutions. So, like you always say, coming in with the Semedo substitution pushes Sergio Roberto up to the right as a midfielder, as you love. And, of course, we saw those great runs that he was doing, just like he did in the Clastico last time where he was – you know, the ball just sticks to his feet and he's able to diagonally run through the middle. And those are just awesome runs that he was able to continue to do that 
when he was pushing up even more. And again, I got to give Alverde credit with these substitutions because I didn't think he was going to put Dembele in. I thought that Dembele was too much in the doghouse to use it. But again, Dembele is such a talent, and with his speed, and he led, you know, he led to the the last goal essentially. Yeah, and I think that I suspect we're going to start seeing Rafinha start more and go hard, and maybe not make it all the way to ninety. And have Dembele come in in the 60th, the 65th, or something to, to you know, add new energy, because with Dembele's legs, he can add a lot of new energy uh, into a match. And if Rafinha doesn't really have the uh, gas tank to make it 90, but he can go hard for 65, 70, then great, because he he does well to set the tone in a match and to you know establish the the possession, establish the. I don't know the just like the tone of that front line. Uh, I mean, of course, this is all without Messi. Once Messi's back into action, I who knows if Rafinha is going to get any minutes. But while Messi's out, I think Rafinha is looking good and starting him, letting him go hard, and then relieving him uh, with Dembélé, for example. I think that's something we're going to see. It, maybe in the next match at least yeah that's a good point you know just to use those two guys to just get the 90 minutes and also get maximum performance and width and speed from those two guys when Dembele came on that left side you can just see the the amount of space he was able to get compared to what Coutinho was there before right because you know Dembele's speed is something that you'd have to as a defender pay attention to and Nacho was laying off of him and so that allowed us to get the possession back to get the momentum back into the match and so uh you know Dembele I just hope he you know comes to practice on time man just come to practice on time it doesn't take that much man just come to practice on time it's your job I know and just do the workouts and you'll get playing time because we need you to help us for this campaign he is such a good player do you think Barcelona has written warnings for players who don't show up to practice on I mean I I, you know I They, they they sit down Usman with a with an HR rep, like okay, so uh, you're you're being written yeah. up. Here's what this means. This is how it, this is a this is how it affects you. But again, I just don't understand because they practice like at 11 a.m. You know, it's not anything really early where it's difficult to get there on time. You know, maybe uh, he's up all night playing FIFA. Yeah, that could be too. But I, you know, maybe the HR people need to get up on that when they get in there. It's like this is your HR packet. You know, if you're you're tardy three times, you're gonna get written up and so forth and. Yeah, and then we find. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, he is he is important to the team, you know. And you can see the dynamic that he gives us. I mean, it's a really nice uh, luxury to have because when you look at the Madrid bench, who do they have that really scares you on their bench? Asensio. Yeah, that's about that's about it, right? And we have yeah, you know, more players than that to to come in and really change the game. I personally think Asensio should have started because I think Isco is still a little bit behind the eight ball with just his speed because he's just coming back from injury. And I think Asensio had been playing better. But, you know, as I said before, Isco is one of those players that scares me. So it doesn't matter if he's still hurt or healthy. But like I said, I just feel like we just have our bench. Just have, We have more talent so we can plug in players when we need to at those moments. Yeah. And I mean, case in point, even Vidal got a goal. <laughs> Arturo, not Nacho. <laughs> not Nacho and not Jeffren. Right. <laughs> but yeah, just like uh, just like in the the Manita from what was that 2010, 11? 
Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something around there. Jeffrin yeah. got the fifth goal. So, like, this is just like that where Vidal gets the fifth goal. It's someone who ultimately, in the end, will probably be sort of forgettable in Barcelona history. I mean, he, I think he's doing fine now and whatever. But yeah, ten years from now, how many people are going to talk about Arturo Vidal's time at Barcelona? Yeah, Not could, me. but he scored true. that fifth goal. He did. He did score that, and especially in a Clasico, you know, maybe that'll give him the confidence and you know get some more playing time from Valverde. But again, it was set up by Dembele. You know, Dembele's right. really nice speed down the touchline and a little chip pass. It was kind of, you know, it wasn't a really true pass. He just kind of flicked it up and Vidal was there, of course. I mean, again, I don't know how, you know, I'm going to go back to this. Ramos is such a hack. I swear to God, <laughs> this guy, like he obviously scored some important goals in Real Madrid's history in the last eight years. And I get that. But as a just out and out defender, he is, I mean, how many times did he was lost? Was he on the counter where his spacing was not you know, correct? And especially on this Vidal goal, all he has to do is mark Vidal. Vidal's not even that tall, you know, and he just allowed Vidal to come through the middle and, and Vidal just hammered it home with it with a nice header. But again, Man, I just, oh, man, I love beating Madrid. It's the best. <laughs> yeah, and I hope that uh, we see a, a smiley face from Vidal <laughs> on his social media this week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, real quick, before you, you tie this in, uh, people at the bar were just saying, um, Lopetegui should start uh, putting his profile on info jobs or LinkedIn because <laughs> it's, pre- it's pretty much over. Just because, yeah, they had those minutes where they were looking really strong, but overall, Again, they just didn't look that formidable. I don't know for you. I don't. It didn't look that formidable to me. And I don't know, especially with Bale and Benzema, just not looking that strong and just kind of. I don't know. They just look out of sorts. And I don't know if that's just because they're not playing for the manager or they're just not into this season. You know, I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, it's hard to say exactly, but I. I think one thing is for sure. You know, after this game, Real Madrid is in ninth place in La Liga. And so, yeah, I think it's uh, a, a certainty that Lopetegui is going to be uh, job hunting. The only question is who is Madrid going to pull in, right? Are, are they going to manage to get Zidane back out of retirement or pull, <laughs> or just put in Lopetegui's assistant? Yeah, I mean, the talk here has been Solari, who manages their B team, um, just kind uh, of like the same as the Zidane situation. But like you said, like there's no up-and-coming manager that's out there that wants this job because there's just too much pressure, you know, like for example, they were, you know, in the summertime, there was all those rumors with Pochettino, but man, he, he hasn't done anything. And that, that pick for him to come to Madrid would be actually, I think worse than Lopetegui in my opinion. Well, it, it looks good for us. We're at the top of the table with 21 points, two points clear of Atletico Madrid. So we're looking good in La Liga. The next match is actually going to be during a uh, midweek this miércoles, where we're uh, going to start the Copa del Rey campaign against Leonesa at the Estadio Municipal Reno de Leon. <laughs> so I think this is where we're going to see the B team uh, get their get their minutes for Valverde, don't you think? I hope so. Or even the C team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get the under-19s in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this Juvenil is the opportunity. And obviously we'll see Sillison in goal and, and this will be his campaign. And yeah, it'll give the starters a much needed break, especially with these past three matches that we played. Mm-hmm. 
Special thanks to Michelle Taylor and Jonathan Wilson this week. Don't forget to buy his new book, The Barcelona Inheritance in the U.S., The Barcelona Legacy Elsewhere in the World. This has been a production of Barca Talk, written by Gabriel Quiroga and Brian Henderson, editing and music by Brian Henderson, social media and promotion by Gabriel Quiroga. We can't make this show without you, the listeners. To see the premiums you get with a monthly contribution of support, follow the link to Patreon in the episode description. Visca Barca! Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.